Welcome to the Spine and Rehab Specialists podcast series. My name is Harry Koster, physical therapist and the host of this podcast. We are a physical therapy company with multiple clinics in the El Paso, Texas area. Each episode, we will go over a different physical therapy or general health related topic just to give you more insight in some of the things that are going on in our field and possibly in your life. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get into it. Welcome, everybody, to another podcast for Spine and Rehab Specialists. Uh, with me today, I have Guillermo and Laura with Aliviane. Um, I think our listeners probably don't really know what Aliviane is. So, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your organization. Sure. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, we hope that the listeners take a little bit away of what we do and why we do it. Good. So Aliviane is a nonprofit organization. We've been in the community now for 52 years. And we provide prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery support services for to more than 60,000 people on average on a yearly basis. Um, because of the pandemic, we saw our numbers dip a little bit. Last year, we were at around 53,000. But in years past, pre-pandemic, we were serving up to 70,000 people per year. Wow. And, and what is the service that you guys provide to, to the people of El Paso? So the majority of those services fall under prevention and intervention. So if you think of um, a kid in school or when you were a student, if we were well, That's to, a long time ago, by well, the way. In, uh, not that long, but we can, <laughs> we can think about us going to your school and saying, um, Harry, we're going to talk to you about the dangers of consuming drugs, alcohol, or tobacco. Okay. And this is science-based. This is what happens to your body. These are the things that, um, the risks that you run if you're exposed to these substances. And in that process, Harry says, you know, I know what it's like uh, to smoke because uh, I, from time to time, I steal a cigarette from my brother or my sister. So then prevention is not necessarily what you're looking for. You may be a better candidate for intervention. Okay. So that's when we provide evidence-based um, information to you to try to get you to choose an alternative or change your way about that occasional drink or smoke. But Harry may say, you know, I'm well beyond that because now if I don't smoke in the morning or if I don't have a drink, I start shaking um, I get in a very bad move. I have obsessive thoughts. All I want to do is smoke or drink. Well, then, Harry, you would be better suited for our outpatient treatment. And that's where we can provide you with uh, therapy and life skills that can help you sustain recovery. Let's say that you are very uh, in a very desperate situation. And the outpatient treatment is not something that's going to work for you. So we offer intensive residential treatment as an opportunity for you to be in an inpatient setting and receive the uh, treatment uh, that is uh, more acute, that it's more intense. After that, you find yourself in recovery and you will be receiving recovery support services. 
to help you sustain recovery. And that is one way of looking at what we've been providing the community now for 52 years. Wow, that's 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 great. So is most of your um, prevention and maybe even intervention targeted towards youth or is it really all ages? It's targeted to youth. If, if you look at uh, the state of Texas trying to invest money to have the best result for their investment, that's the age group that you really need to focus on. And let me tell you a couple of reasons. Unfortunately, in the type of work that we do in our field, you find that people that seek services in their assessment will say, you know, when I started using drugs and alcohol, when I was eight years old. You know, when I first used heroin, when I was 10. You know that my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister were the ones that used to supply me with drugs or alcohol. And it is between the ages of eight and 10. So for your listeners, I, I challenge them to think about a little one in their life, anyone, maybe a nephew or niece, a son or a daughter. Step two, ask them, hey, do you know anybody that smokes or that does drugs or that vapes? I bet you a dollar that all of them will say, yes, I know someone. And that is really the population that we try to influence the most. That is the population that we try to have uh, the biggest impact on because it is proven that if you can plant the seed, if you provide kids with evidence-based, science-based information and approaches, they usually listen. I'm, I'm really amazed, and I'm pre- pretty sure our listeners are too, that it really starts that young. Mm-hmm. My guess would have been probably 12 to 14, not 8 to 10. Mm-hmm. Wow. Eight, 8 to 10. I know that uh, in your listening uh, group, there must be a teacher or an assistant principal. Again, I bet you a dollar they would vouch for what I'm saying, and they will say, yep, we had a kid that got intoxicated. We had to send them to the hospital. But because of the setting that surrounds them, oftentimes they don't disclose that it's as a result of alcohol or drugs. But that's what's happening in our elementary schools. Wow, that is just sad. It, it sure is. And that is, that is why we do what we do. That is why we wake up every morning and a lot of gets to work. Even though we work in the administrative side of the organization, we do what we can to support those that are delivering the services because they're very much needed. Yeah. What, what is your, your background? So my uh, background is in the military. I was um, in the Navy Reserves for about 13 years. And previous to this life, I used to be a staff member for a congressional office. And the two issue areas that I had uh, that were under my responsibility were drug demand reduction and drug supply reduction efforts. And that's what most people talked about, at least in our region drug trafficking, the availability of drugs, the people that are falling victims to to those uh, drugs. And then that's how I naturally progress into the position that I've been in for the last 12 years. Okay. Okay. And Laura, what is, what is your uh, background? 
Um, uh, I work in marketing. marketing. Okay. I'm the marketing coordinator in Aliviane. And we're really happy to uh, be here today, especially because in Aliviane we're really trying to make a difference in the community. You know, uh, last year uh, drug overuse was um, the number one cause of accidental deaths in El Paso in, in 2020, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think, you know, probably with the pandemic, it's only gotten worse, right? Exactly. More it people, sure you know, being stuck at home, you know, looking for things to do, but also just, you know, more desperation of, you know, looking for, for you know, some way out of this, you know, this bad situation. Think about, uh, and I'm sure that the people that seek your services have reported at least during the last two years or so, sometimes weight gain that contributes mm -hmm. to the injuries that they're having. With that weight gain, uh, and we can all think about the time that we were at home, um, the food's available, you have nowhere to go, and so what do you do? You watch Netflix and you eat. Add the reality of a large uh, section of our community that had alcohol available, that had nowhere to go, you know, they're not going to drive, so they overdid uh, it. And some people that were in recovery already, they were doing well, they had a stable job, you know, they mended fences with family, found themselves without work, at home, with bottles, and the end was not, was not so good. So we tried to address those uh, situations to the best of our abilities with what we have. I can also imagine during a pandemic, because you know schools were were closed, a lot of Zoom school happening, that probably reduced your access to that as well. Because I think it's probably easier for you guys to get into a classroom than to get in people's homes, you know, that are you know being Zoom schooled. So how did that affect your, you know, the effectiveness of you know the programs that you guys have? It was a huge, huge barrier. At the beginning, if you can remember, few of us knew what Zoom was. And few yeah. of us understood <laughs> how, how I've done a few Zoom meetings, right? I think, if I, if I remember well. But yeah, yeah, definitely. It was it was tough. So because the requirements that we had were in person and in school in the activities and how we disseminate information, the most effective way that we had was in person. We had to come back to the drawing board and reimagine and rethink how are we going to do this so that the kids, that the young people in El Paso would still reap the benefit of the information? Fortunately, just like Laura is in marketing, we have amazing staff that uh, don't lack the ingenuity, the innovation, and the willingness to think outside the box. And so they did, and they got it done. It, it did take us maybe about a month to be able to do so uh, with the blessing of the state because the state is very prescriptive as you know if you practice any type of uh, health if you have a license they they get to tell you how and when so they came around and they allowed us to do it over uh, over zoom yeah i know in in, in our field too i mean until 2019, I believe that for physical therapy in the state of Texas, 
you couldn't do um, you know, Zoom therapy. Right. Um, it was approved in 2019, so before the pandemic, but nobody would pay for it. So it was pretty much not happening. And then Medicare had to come with a emergency authorization of you know telehealth, essentially, and, and finding ways to even get us paid in that. So I can only imagine that you guys had to go through some of that same, you know, that, some of those same issues. Um, so how do, does it work with you guys? Are you guys set up like in, in schools? Do you go on a regular basis every year, a couple of times a year? Or how do you guys work? How do your programs work? So the vast majority of our uh, network for those services, prevention and intervention, um, have us partner with local school districts. And fortunately, we can tell you that all of the school districts, all the way to Tornillo, San Elisario, uh, Fabens, they have been incredible partners. They continue to provide access. They think of ways in which we can continue to have a presence. And they have joined the innovative bandwagon where uh, they're willing to try things and come back to the drawing board if it doesn't work. So the school districts really have been incredible partners in this, in this effort. Awesome, awesome. Um, what do you think the effectiveness is of you know, like your organizations and the programs that you have? Do you, do you have ways to measure it? So if you think of substance use, the prevention and intervention realm is extremely effective. And, and that goes along the lines of the public health model. So um, not sure if you remember the, the days when athletes used to come out in a um, after a game or during a, a commercial and they used to take out a cigarette and be like, oh, yeah. I, I've been waiting for this the whole game. And how much the population overall in the U.S. were smoking. It wasn't until the federal government decided to take the public health approach and not pay so much attention to the acute cases and invest heavily on the prevention and intervention, it took about one generation. But now I challenge you to find an eight to 12 year old that smokes cigarettes. I challenge you to find one. Okay. Because they have been brought up with this science-based, evidence-based information that not only shows them the consequences the long-term, but all of them will have this reaction. Ooh, that's nasty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's because it is extremely effective. Unfortunately, we haven't done the same with vaping because kids now think it's cool, it tastes good, oh, yeah. it feels good, all of those mm -hmm. things. So the prevention and intervention uh, methods are extremely effective. When we have a difficult time conveying to, to people in the community the effectiveness of treatment, they go back to their cousin, their brother, or that uncle that has struggled with addiction time and time again. Oh, you know, they always go to treatment, they come back, and they're not cured. Well, this is a lifelong chronic illness. And just like diabetes, you're going to have people that do great, but maybe on their birthday, they'll slip and they'll have a slice of cake or they'll be in an emotional situation where eating or exercising is not one of their priorities. 
substance use disorders are the same. So what we tell people is treatment is extremely effective. Treatment works and recovery is possible, but it's a lifelong commitment. And if you look at the folks that when they first go in, they have uh, problems with the judicial system. They have problems with their immediate family. They have uh, civil or situations going on, unemployment, a lot of barriers. They go to treatment. Coming out of treatment, some of those items start getting resolved. And um, those are great indicators of how effective the treatment is. Uh, but for the most part, just like um, diabetes or um, hypertension or other chronic illnesses, uh, we don't hold fast to the idea that if you take this, you'll never have to struggle with it again because it's part of a lifestyle, it's part of a, a biology and all these other external factors. Yeah, yes. I think, yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of, you know, you know, chemistry behind it even mm -hmm. you know I, I think i see that a lot that if somebody really has an addictive personality yeah it's really hard to, to to cure that yeah but but recovery is possible actually now that you were mentioning about the effectiveness of the treatment um i like to say this uh, very interesting number that the cdc um they uh, published this study in 2020 where they were saying they found that three out of uh, four people who experience addiction they eventually recover Okay. So that's the effect in it. Yeah, so that's you know, yeah. 75%. That's, yeah. that's, that's you know, pretty good rate. Three out of four is yeah. pretty good. Obviously, it's always better to, to prevent needing that. Yeah, people will think that it, it's, you know, um, it might be less, but actually, you know, treatment has, mm -hmm. has a good Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's good. That's good. So is there a different approach to vaping versus, you know, the, the regular tobacco use? Does it take a different approach, or what do you think is the is the solution now that you know kids have kind of shifted to vaping? Mm -hmm. What's what's the solution you know, there? When, from a public health model, it's the same vehicle, the same process, the same recipe. The issue that we have is regulatory. So the federal government has not said enough, and that's why you're able to sell uh, vaping products at a certain age or have them flavored like bubble gum, mm -hmm. piña colada, <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and bubble gum, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to know that is marketed to, to children. Kids, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. And, and so it has to come from the top. It has to be made one of the priorities. Right now, the danger about vaping is kids don't know exactly what goes into their body. You know, they change the formulas so much to stay ahead of the regulations that are trying to control. They are, um, as a business model, they put as much addicting substance per cartridge that they can in hopes that they develop a client base. Not only that, but vaping um, nicotine products and vaping THC products, any parent, out there that's listening, you will not be able to know the difference. You will not. And if you smoke a regular marijuana cigarette that is rolled versus vaping a THC product, you're getting more of the THC delivered to you on a short period of time 
than the cigarette. And so we're really up against um, a tough adversary here, which is the vaping industry. Yeah, because not only is it yeah, it's different. I guess it's it's cool. I never tried it myself, but um, I think kids probably think it's cool. But they also think it's probably not as bad as cigarettes. Yep. Is that true? It, and that is probably the, the biggest misconception out there uh, because they've learned smoking or burning something like cigarettes. Bad. Bad, yeah. Cancer, black lungs. Vaping, you know, it's odorless or if it smells, it smells delicious like yeah. cinnamon <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and so that is really putting us behind the eight ball here. Yeah, definitely. So I guess we got a, a battle up ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's go to uh, marijuana, right? We're, we're seeing that there's, there's more and more a trend of trying to make it legalized in, in different forms. Of course, mm-hmm. federally, it's still still not legalized, but we know New Mexico has just, you know, opened up. Um, so first of all, what is your opinion on that? And how will those kind of efforts, like, you know, just across the border where New Mexico has made it, um, you know, more legal for recreational marijuana, um, how is that going to impede your efforts of what you're trying to do in, in El Paso? So Aliviane really doesn't care about the legal status of any substance. Um, I'm going to give you an example. The vast majority of people that seek our services are there for alcohol abuse. Perfectly legal, Mm -hmm. socially acceptable, sometimes encouraged. And so the vast majority of our folks have or struggle with alcohol use. Uh, In our assessments for the folks that are reporting drug use, drug use, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, opioids, any of the other drugs, nine out of 10, nine out of 10 say, I started doing drugs, smoking pot. And I'm not here to say that it should be called a gateway, because I don't know the definition of the gateway Mm -hmm. drug and all that. But if you show me a thousand people and 900 that are struggling with um, drug use say, oh, I first started using marijuana when I was younger. That tells me, and I'm not a smart person, maybe I need to stay away from marijuana if I want to avoid the struggles of uh, drug use in the future. When you make a substance more available, it tells people that is acceptable. So if you look at low-income neighborhoods, you would not be hard-pressed to find a liquor store. You would not be hard-pressed to find a place where you can use vaping products, where you can buy them. Mm-hmm. There's one in each corner. Right. The yeah. issue, if you go to a most affluent uh, neighborhood, they're nowhere to be seen. And we know that according to zip codes, the zip codes that find themselves in a lower socioeconomic status do worse in health outcomes. So having marijuana be legal conveys the message that it is good for you and then you get into the well it is great because of the pain it is great because of you know i'm able to eat and all the other uh narrative that you've heard unfortunately what we see that the vast majority of people that seek our services that find themselves incarcerated where they lost their family, 
they lost their employment, they um, feel abandoned or rejected, they all started uh, with marijuana in their younger years. Curious to, to know, and I don't know if there's any research on that. If So if marijuana would be legal everywhere, would it then be a bigger barrier to go to something that's illegal? You know, mm-hmm. heroin, ecstasy, anything like that. I'm just curious if, if there's any research on that. Because that, that's probably the only thing that I could think of when you make... You know, marijuana legal, but everything else is still illegal. Would that then create a bigger barrier and people would stop with marijuana and not go on to the next drug? So there's a couple of examples that we have seen in our advocacy that not necessarily answer that directly, but can give you a hint. So, for example, for the longest time, the alcohol industry, the distributors, you know, it's legal, we pay taxes, and we support these initiatives. We don't see any of that money. None. The idea that if something becomes becomes legal, then you have the ability to tax it, then you have the ability to use the resource. I challenge people to find me that alcohol tax that we get. Mm-hmm. It's not available. It's not... Um, Part of what nonprofits see, what treatment centers see, it just never materialized. That's, in my opinion, a lie. If you think of um, the ability to regulate it in such a way that you are going to curve the use, the willingness is not there. The only example that I can think of is cigarettes. When the federal government finally said, I've had enough. I'm not going to allow you to sell it in, in, um, to a certain age group, to advertise it, to all these other things. That's when we saw a shift. But it's not because of the legality of tobacco. It was because of the decision to be aggressive with the public health model and let people know. You know what happens if you smoke? Probably you'll die. The day we do that with marijuana in the same approach, then we can see those those uh, results. But it is it's tough. It's a bunch of moving parts. Um, it, it's hard because a lot of people have preconceived ideas, or this is what I believe. But oftentimes, what we believe and what data shows are not the same thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, uh, another thing to think about is also <clears throat> that um, a lot of the people that start using other substances that are illegal, they start with drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Um, let's bring in like legal drugs like opioids, mm-hmm. right? Because we're, you know, we're in a field where we see that a lot, right. you know, patients with, with pain that are, you know, taking, you know, taking opioids. So how does that play into a role into what you guys are doing and what you're seeing out there? So... Uh, Years back, there was a common um, theme to certain people coming into our uh, medication-assisted treatment clinic. For the most part, we've had 99% of the people that seek that service report heroin as a primary drug of choice. That was always the case, with a few exceptions. Then... 
the prescription of um, of these medications started a trend where people used them or misused them and became addicted to the medication. The provider decided no more. Then that person quickly went to heroin. But because they were not your your traditional heroin users, uh, a short period of time thereafter, they were at our doorstep asking for help. And it, it was an increase. As time went by, and we all have seen the movies and we read the reports and we see the news, um, that became more and more and more the reason for accidental deaths. So you have someone that maybe started using heroin when they were 11, and the person that did that with them and showed them how to do that is a family member. Well, they also teach you how not to overdose. No one's in the business of using drugs to die. Of course. So they show you, they teach you, they they do all that, um, all those skills, where a patient of back surgery or major surgery who finds himself in that situation doesn't have that background they're more at risk of an accidental overdose and that's the numbers that that um, uh, Laura was sharing with us and how disheartening it is to see people from from different age groups succumb to to a drug overdose yeah definitely so what statistic do you have on that, Laura? I'm sorry, the statistic for the opioid clinic? Yes. We have uh, um, last year 356 people that we serve. Okay. Yeah. And at least for the folks that we see, um, we have a requirement that not only do they take the medication, but they also receive individual counseling and group counseling. And that is with the idea that we provide all the skills in the tools that you need to sustain long-term recovery. So sometimes we use the example of having someone that doesn't know how to swim. And if you can think of not knowing how to swim and I push you in the middle of a pool and your head's below water and that desperation, that wanting to gasp for air is there. And that's when people are actively using drugs or alcohol. When the medication is prescribed to you to help you with that, you're only but with your mouth and nose over the water. You're not drowning, you're not dying, but you're still in the pool. So counseling, individual and group counseling, help you see where the um, end of that pool is so that you can get yourself out. And that's how we like to uh, share with the community the analogy of, of the medication-assisted treatment clinic because it is very effective. If you adhere to the treatment, if you take the medication as prescribed, if you go to the individual and counseling sessions, people reach that long-term recovery. And that's when you find out that the reason why uh, this person um, started doing drugs was because they were victims of sexual abuse or because they witnessed trauma, or they were victims of a traumatic event. Almost all of our clients, there's never 
but this is probably as close as you'll ever be. The majority of our clients have experienced trauma and the use of drugs or alcohol is their attempt to self-medicate or forget about it and not deal with it sober. And the individual in, in group counseling gives a person a safe environment and an opportunity for you to deal and face those demons. Yeah, and it really does take like a comprehensive multidisciplinary you yeah. know approach right you can't just say oh just stop cold turkey and i'll be okay that just right. yeah that's rarely so, gonna work i i mean when you meet those people you i always tell them you don't know how blessed you are because it is a blessing god knows why you were the chosen one you were able to one day say i'm gonna put it out and i'm gonna go about my way just a blessing both my parents actually did that because, wow. yeah, they um, they smoked until they're like mid forties or so. You know, of course, they they grew up in the in the thirties, so at that point, smoking was acceptable. It was good. It was probably healthy for you, um, so it was perfectly it acceptable used to be from the start. Prescribed for nerves, oh, yeah. for anxiety. Yeah, yeah. smoke a cigarette. Woman, right? mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I bet you that my mom probably smoked when she was pregnant with you know the, there was three of us. Probably, I don't think she stopped because of that, because I there was no evidence for that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm glad they both stopped. You know, in their probably mid forties when I was still young. That's why I never smoked. But yeah, so definitely. Okay, I'm gonna play a little bit devil's devil's advocate with you. Mm -hmm. So, in our clinic, we have people that use you know the, the opioid pain medication, and I've I've heard this comment several times. I'd rather use you know pot than oxycodone, you know, codone, oxycontin, anything like that. So what do we tell those people? Because that's, that's a little bit of a hard argument, right? I mean, it's, you know, we know the opioids are, you know, really bad. Mm -hmm. Maybe pot is not quite as bad. So how, how would you approach that? How do I need to approach it as a therapist when my patient, you know, has a conversation with me? That's a great question, Harry. And that is something that we called risk reduction. So uh, when someone is using a substance that they feel they have misused or that has taken over their life, and they say, you know, instead of this, I'm going to do this. It's still risky, but if you're able to help that person minimize the risk, you're walking in the right direction. And um, we have never been an organization that judges, that doesn't meet people where they're at. A perfect example is our intervention um, outreach workers. They go out with people that are actively using drugs, that are, in, that are IV uh, drug users. And they may tell the person, I know you're not ready, but instead of using, uh, not taking care of your wound, or using um, sharing needles, I would suggest with these cleaning products that you take care of yourself. We're not encouraging that behavior. What we're doing is gaining the trust of that person, minimizing the risk, the health risk, and eventually that person's gonna be ready and they'll say, you know, I've had enough. So when one of the folks that you see, one of your patients, expresses the desire to minimize risk you got them where you want them good because eventually 
the discussion should be, is there anything you want to do to completely get rid of the risk? Because the reality is, we know, if you continue to use marijuana, you can develop the addiction. And or with our numbers, the likelihood of you using a, a line of coke after drinking or drinking after you smoke is there. So it's not always a black and white. In our field, it never is and it never will be. We have to meet people where they're at. We have to celebrate that accomplishment and say, you know, it's not easy to stop the opioid uh, medication. It probably has some withdrawal symptoms. If you were able to do it and you decided no mas, good for you. Let's talk about your marijuana use and meet them where they're at so that they can get, um, hopefully, uh, a sober lifestyle. Yeah, good, good. I mean, it definitely you know, makes me feel good because when, when a patient tells me that, I kind of look at it and I was like, well, you know, I, I guess it's better at the same time. I don't want to necessarily, yeah, sure, you know, you know <laughs> smoke all you want. But you know, at the same time, I kind of feel like it is a step in the right direction. So, you know, I think at that point, we just need to make sure that we refer them to you guys, mm -hmm. you know, as far as, you know, being able to take the next step. And hopefully we can help them with their pain, which is originally why they started anyway with the, you know, with the opioid medication. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because that's, that's, you know, our goal in physical therapy is really trying to get people off of medications, injection surgeries and things like that and help them manage their pain better you know maybe through you know first of all non-addictive stuff but you know whether it's you know heat or ice or you know electrical stimulation exercises movement and everything so um, that way maybe we together we can you know we can help them you know get rid of that addiction and you know i think we share um, a common approach because if i understand um, your your protocol or if i understand your goal when someone has an injury you want to at least strengthen those muscles that are around, make that person more um, uh, healthy in, in all aspects, right? Maybe lose a little weight so mm -hmm. that it's less, and, and take into consideration all these things. And we try to do the same so that a person can have those life skills that can help support the decision to, to stay in recovery. Without the exercise, I don't think your patients will see the improvement that they need to see. Without following your guidance about uh, good diet and regular movement and stretching, they would not be able to meet those milestones. We take the same approach. Without um, the life skills that can help you differentiate between um, uh, what I need in my life to rationalize the thoughts that I have to avoid drug use, we would be going nowhere. So there's a lot of uh, common ground uh, when you when you think about healthcare delivery. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, we we have was one of our our goals, you know, help people live the best life possible. So. Mm -hmm. That's from our end, of course, moving better, get stronger, and, and be able to more, be more functional. And from your end is to, to try to do that without, you know, addictive substances. And I bet that the, that the patient is the one that gets to say, this is my definition of the best life possible. Mm -hmm. Even course. if it's, you know, I wish you could run, but for them it's tying their shoe. 
that is the definition and that is our approach we want to make sure that the client the treatment that they receive is client-centered they get to say what's important they get to say what they want to work on and we're here to support them along the way great great awesome so what do people need to do if they you know listen to this podcast and think that they need help so the best um, thing they can do is go to our website uh, it's www.aliviane.org okay. and they can uh, send us an email under the contact info and they can provide their name their phone number and what is their question do they want to learn more about prevention and intervention services do they have a family member that that they believe needs treatment or themselves you know we get a lot of emails that say i'm struggling i just received one that said i'm in a very dark place and i need help and and that is enough for us to reach out to them and then schedule an assessment do you get more contact from potential patients themselves or from family members and people surrounding them it's a mix it's a mixture um unfortunately i would say that the family members have gone through it a few times where you cannot want something for someone else yeah. and you cannot exercise for someone else <laughs> that's right you have to allow that person to take that step and so we see that the vast majority are people interested in themselves their their services yeah i can imagine you have the best success rate if somebody really wants it absolutely don't really want i mean it, this is this is voluntary we don't have people against their will sometimes i've had family members that say why did you let them walk out of the residential facility you know because it's not a jail yeah and you can feel the desperation you can sense the urgency but it's part of life and that has to be done on their own terms yeah definitely yeah, so. they can also find us on social media and instagram and facebook we are alivian inc Okay. Can also send those messages there. Excellent. Excellent. Anything else to add? Oh, thank you for the opportunity thank and the you. work you do. It's important anytime we meet someone that is encouraging people to live a better life, to think about themselves as a healthy individual, you know, they're our partners. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you guys for coming in. Um, I needed to be educated on it, so I'm sure our, our public needed to be educated on this as well. I'm so glad you guys are here, you know, you're preventing, and if that doesn't work, treating, you know, any kind of addiction. Yeah. So, well, thank you guys for being here. Thank, thank you for you. the invite. All right.